You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. We're going to start it off tonight with the MLB winter meetings. A few more moves going on. Not quite the big uh, chips landing yet. And Manny Machado and Bryce Harper, we will talk about those guys in a couple of moments. But let's start with the Philadelphia Phillies acquiring Andrew McCutcheon, former Pittsburgh Pirate, former San Francisco Giant. He comes to the Phillies on a three-year, $50 million deal. Will likely play left field with Reese Hoskins, last year's left fielder, moving to first base for the Phillies as the Phillies traded Carlos Santana in that Gene Segura trade we discussed last week, uh, Santana being the Phillies' first baseman a year ago. So McCutcheon fills that spot. They're not out on Harper or Machado yet, but already beginning to make moves are the Phillies first with Segura, now with McCutcheon. What do you guys think of the move? I think this means that they're going to look for the pitching market now because not that Andrew McCutcheon is your um, duct tape is your glue to put it all together, but he's reliable enough that you can put him there and be okay with it. You don't need to worry about finding a backup. You don't need to worry about finding a replacement. But now they could be looking at maybe a big-name target that's not Harper or Machado. They could be looking for Dallas Keuchel. They could be looking for a big-name arm to bring into this rotation. It's a young but strong rotation. They were probably 3-1, 3-2 ERA uh, for the 2018 season. So they're probably going to look for the pitching market now. I think that's a good ad for them, at least for the bat. No, yeah, I agree. I think at this point, I don't I don't necessarily seeing them get uh, getting Harper moving forward. And I, I like bringing McCutcheon. As you said, he's that veteran type of player. And in the Phillies team where, you know, they have so much youth around him, I think he'll be a good guy in that clubhouse, you know, coming in and as being that leader for them on and off the field. And like you said, possible pitchers they can go after, you know, even Kluber's out there as well. So um, I think it's a pretty good move. Uh, that from the Phillies right there. And maybe they become players on the trade market a little mm-hmm. bit more so than before because he dangled Nick Williams, who is maybe going to be in that spot if they didn't sign McCutcheon or Aaron out there, as well as some of those young pitchers, to maybe pull away you know, somebody that, that uh, you know wouldn't be necessarily expected to be dealt uh, this offseason, and perhaps a guy from the Indians who, who have been dangling Trevor Bauer and Corey Kluber out there. They've been active today, mm-hmm. completing a three-team trade to acquire Carlos Santana, Edwin Engarnacion, perhaps, though, the biggest player of that deal. He goes to Seattle from Cleveland. So Cleveland will get back Carlos Santana. Uh, the Rays also receive a couple young players, but the big movers are Engarnacion to Seattle, and Carlos Santana back to Cleveland where he started his career. Yeah, I like this move from the uh, Mariners' perspective. Obviously, they lost Robinson Cano in the trade to the Mets. So I think, you know, you get rid of Cano in that contract and you get back Encarnacion, who, who's not the youngest guy, but he'll, he'll be that reliable bat that Cano was for them and uh, I think it was a good move for the Mariners. It was more of a money move. You got the two bats, but you have... $5 million, $6 million, and a $20 million contract just floating around between all these players with their major and minor league contracts. So all in all, it was more to clear the books and to clear cap, or I shouldn't say cap, but uh, space away from the royalty this year. Um, but this will come into play next year's free agency because then they'll have to decide if they want to keep these players and sign these players. It's a little interesting to see Seattle first trade, trade James Paxton, then they trade Cano and Edwin Diaz, but now they're acquiring back a more veteran player and a 36-year-old Edwin Encarnacion, where indications from their moves before would signal maybe this team is going a little bit younger. But Jake, you're saying more to do with kind of the finances and getting off that Carlos Santana money. He still had two years left on a three-year deal he signed with the Phillies before last season. 
with the average annual salary around $20 million for him. Some money exchanges hands in this trade as well. Tampa sends $5 million to Seattle, and Seattle pays $6 million back to Cleveland. So uh, these things get a little bit dicier than just the contracts on the board for each player. Uh, but kind of, kind of an interesting move there between the three teams. Uh, the other signing just yesterday, Juris Familia, goes back to the Mets on a three-year, $30 million deal. The second big reliever that New York has acquired this offseason, of course, getting Edwin Diaz, who had over 50 saves a season ago in Seattle. They get him in the same trade with Cano. Now you add Familia back, who was most recently with Oakland. What do you think of that trade, guys? Or signing? I love that they got Familia back, in my opinion. Um he necessarily doesn't have to be that closer now because we got Diaz and he's going to be that go-to guy in the ninth inning. But if you give the ball to Familia in the eighth and then Diaz in the ninth, I think that's about as good as a one-two punch. You could see um, he had some ups and downs uh, last season, and then they trade him to Oakland. But if he can get back to that, you know how he performed when they were in the world, uh, contending for a World Series, I think this was a great move for the Mets. Welcome back, my sweet prince. This is great. I'm glad to have him back. It it also means that. The Mets aren't trading Noah Syndergaard, mm-hmm. which is perhaps the bigger deal yeah. because they wouldn't beef up their bullpen, give him an ace closer, an ace setup man to not keep Noah Syndergaard. That just doesn't make any sense. And given it is the Mets, they do things that don't make sense. But to bring Familia for a three-year $30 million, it's not a heavy contract. He wants to play here. He wants to be here. And people forget that now the Mets have two players that were perhaps the best closers from 2015 to 2018. They are putting one as a set of man, but with a four-man bullpen, I think we're pretty good. Where's the next move for the Mets? A lot was talked about with them, about perhaps trading Syndergaard. They had a lot of talk about would Jeff McNeil go it to the Seattle Mariners and that Cano-Diaz trade. They end up going with uh, the first-round pick from a season ago. What, what's the next move on the horizon for the Mets, the next maybe area of need for them to address? I think the biggest area you need is still the catcher. Uh, I don't think they're going to get Real Muto anymore now because that would involve Syndergaard probably going. But there has been a lot of discussion about them possibly getting uh, Grandal from the Dodgers. So maybe, you know, not as good as a catcher as Real Muto, but some guy in, you know, the second tier maybe that they can go after. Right go- now, A.J. Pollock is probably oh, yeah. their top priority because they need an outfield bat. And the reason why they're going so aggressive for A.J. Pollock is because they know that keeping all three of their outfielders is probably not a possibility mm-hmm. in the realm of rebuild. So they're going to look after him. You still have Grandal, Wilson Ramos. Even Martin Maldonado is another catcher who wasn't necessarily elite, but he's an upgrade for who we have now. So the Mets are just going to be the Mets. They're going to try to put out the best nine people, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's another fluke trade here and there. You're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD, running through some of the bigger signings and trades to happen so far at the winter meetings right now being held out in Las Vegas, Nevada. The Yankees signed J.A. Happ to a two-year, $34 million deal to come back uh, to the team where he he really closed the season strong. The Phillies were talked about as a potential suitor for J.A. Happ, as were a few other teams. The big talk was, would he get that third year? He right now comes into it. Uh, well over his age, he's going to enter this season at, at 36. He's not 36 yet, but he's going to enter the season at 36. So nobody gives him that two-year guarantee, but the Yankees outbid everybody, uh, guaranteeing $34 million. What do you think of the signing of J.I. Happ? Yikes. Yeah, I think I think this move comes in probably uh, following that they thought they weren't going to get Syndergaard, but I don't know necessarily how good of a move is for the Happ. Obviously, they got Paxton in the trade, but... Um, how much did they give him? What'd you say? How much? Did they 34. 34. 
four a year million to, dollars. No, total. Okay, two thirty-four. Wow, for yeah. J.A. That's a lot of money. As, assuming that you'll have him, well, you're gonna have him pitching until thirty-seven, thirty-eight. So that's a lot of money for a pitcher like him. So I don't know uh, about that move for the Yankees. Steep contract <laughs> to put out for a guy that probably won't give you twenty-five starts in a season. What what does that make the Yankees rotation kind of stand at now, especially when you have to compare it against their crosstown rival, not crosstown, but division rival in Boston, you know, who comes in last season with, with Sale, with Price, who pitched better in the playoffs than maybe most people expected him to. You have Paxton, you have Sabathia, they tried to get Patrick Corbin, they swung and missed on him. Where does that leave you with the Yankees rotation, and is it a rotation that still needs to make some moves? They still have Tanaka. Um, they still have uh, Herman, the Severino. Gu- yeah, the guy Severino. they brought in. They still have Severino as the ace. I don't think there's um, room to be nervous, but at the same time, when you look at these d- people like Boston, even Houston, mm-hmm. with just firepower, even Cleveland Indians, mm-hmm. just firepower left and right, they'll probably need, if it's not going to be a starter, they need to do something in the bullpen to try and bridge that gap. Yeah, I think they're definitely going to have to add some type of pitcher. Like you said, I don't know if it'll be a starter or a reliever, but when you look at all the other, you know, dynamic teams in that, comp, just let alone that um, the AL, I mean, there's a lot of teams out there that have dynamic pitching uh, rotations and bullpens, so I think they're definitely going to have to try to add some uh, one more person along the way. Maybe one arm that will switch from the AL to the NL is Joe Kelly, the athletic reporting that the Dodgers are close to an agreement with Kelly, who is one of those power arms for the Red Sox late last season. Not quite great regular season numbers, but really turned it up in the postseason, only allowing one run in 11 and a third innings in the playoffs. Would be in the neighborhood of three years, $25 million, according to Yahoo Sports's uh, Jeff Passan. What do you think of the Dodgers perhaps getting Joe Kelly, a power right-handed arm to add to that bullpen with Jensen? They are. They brought him for the setup, man. He'll be the setup man for the Dodgers through and through. You'll probably never see him in the sixth, never see him in the seventh, unless um, obviously very situational. But he's averages 99-mile-per-hour fastball. He can hit 100 pretty easily. And for a team that can just pound runs here and there, you need a guy that can just close it out and set it up for uh, who they think is a great closer in Jansen. Yeah, I think the Dodgers definitely uh, would make an, a smart move here. We're getting Kelly because there was a lot of times last year where they would get to the eighth or ninth inning, and you know they'd have some issues in the bullpen. And the next thing you know, they blew the game. So uh, if they were able to get Kelly, I think that'd be a really uh, beneficial move for the Dodgers. Blue Hen Sports Cage and ninety-one point three WVUD. Jake Lambert, Nick DeLaglio, Brandon Halvek. All these moves—they're important, but they're definitely smaller in scale when we talk about the big guys coming into this offseason. Patrick Corbin has signed, but aside from that. Machado still on the board. Bryce Harper still on the board. Given what's happened so far, maybe the most important to that being what the Philadelphia Phillies and the New York Yankees have done in signing Andrew McCutcheon and now J.A. Happ for the Yankees. The Yankees also acquiring James Paxton from the Mariners in a trade. Has anything that's gone on so far in the offseason changed your opinion or best estimate of what's going to happen with Manny Machado and Bryce Harper? Let's first take Harper. Has anything that's gone on changed what you think is going to unfold with Bryce Harper? They're going to pay Harper big time. Harper's going to get every penny he wants, and I didn't think that was going to happen, but we look at these meetings, and teams are going after the small guys, and Mm -hmm. small guys being relative, like Brandon mentioned, Andrew McCutcheon being one of them, A.J. Pollock getting a lot of looks, Paul Goldschmidt signing with the Cardinals. 
these teams that don't get these players are seeing the pool shrink. Mm-hmm. The reliever floodgates have opened. Relievers are going left and right. People with payrolls are not going to be spending on these guys. So when you look at needy teams and they look at the available player list, it's Bryce Harper and that's all there is to it. So Bryce Harper's going to get a lot of money. He might not get the team he wants. He wants to go to a contender and he'll only sign with a contender. But at this point, most contenders have not really done too much. No, yeah, I definitely agree uh, with you that Harper is going to get paid. And going along with that, I read something today, I don't know how reliable it is, that he could end up going to a team like the Chicago White Sox. I was and just like about to said, bring them up. Yeah, I don't, I didn't, I don't recall where I read that from, but I remember seeing it somewhere on social media. So, you know, a White Sox team that has the money to pay him, they're obviously not that good of a team, but could you see Bryce Harper going to the White Sox? Yeah, I read about at least one, one place that that's been written about is Ken Rosenthal with The Athletic. Mm-hmm. And the conversation with Chicago is this is a team that's been in the shadows of the Cubs for who knows how long, especially recently with the Cubs resurgence. And that team has all the star power. They have three guys above $100 million in contract mm-hmm. value, Hayward, Lester, and Yu Darvish, who they signed last offseason, plus all the young guys, Chris Bryan, Anthony Rizzo, they uh, Javier Baez, they have all the star power. So what could the White Sox do to get some more attention in that city and to, to make the most of being in that market? It's not wouldn't be characteristic of what the White Sox have done in the past. They haven't been a team that's doled out big contracts. The biggest contract they've ever given Jose out Abreu. is Jose Abreu. <laughs> Abreu is a, yeah. Dud. Sorry. And you know, you take a big swing in that that pond, the international pool, and you know, more often than not, you don't end up. I don't wouldn't say with these bust, but they're not the greatest players of all. You know, you Darvish no, is, yeah. is good, not great. Yoannis Cespedes has had really yeah. good seasons, but he's not Mike Trout. And same with Jose Abreu. He had an all-star season, but he's not Albert Pujols at first base. So is Bryce Harper a proven open commodity for them to invest heavily? Would he even want to go there? But it, it's another interesting spot that does have the money to compete with a Philadelphia, with a New York, if they so chose. Yeah, I, I think they'll give him enough money to the point where you know he'll consider. But I, I don't know. At the end of the day, I really don't see Bryce Harper going. Bryce Harper's going to look and see that they have 185 losses in their last yeah. two seasons combined, and going to hit him with the all right. I'll talk to you guys later. When, when was the last time they're relevant with Paul Canerco at first base on that team? Like, like three or two thousand four. Scott Pesednik. Yeah, for sale <laughs> when he was pitching for them. I mean, you know, it's going to take a lot for Harper to consider them. I think. And then let's go to Machado real quick before we hit break. Has anything happened? On the market so far, that's changed your opinion of Machado is going to end up. He's not going to get the money he wants mm-hmm. because uh, there was a report that came out that frankly said teams don't want Manny Machado. They don't care to put all of that money into a player who plays n- doesn't play the best infield. I mean, mm. realistically speaking, there are a bunch of teams that are in need of a left side infielder, but they're okay with who they have right now. And the Mets were one of them. The Mets quickly thought, you know what, maybe Manny Machado can work, but we'll live with Todd Frazier and Ahmed Rosario. He's not going to get the money he wants. He's going to have to sign a lowly contract of large proportions. But this is not Manny Machado's offseason. This is Bryce Harper's, and he's going to get all the money. No, yeah. Machado's looking for a 10-year deal around there. And as you said, no team's going to give it to him. You know, five or six, maybe four years is probably what he'll end up getting. And honestly, he's probably going to have to sell for something that he's probably not uh, too big of a fan as well as Harper. I still think the Phillies are big players in that. You know, they they Mm -hmm. do acquire Gene Segura, but I don't think that takes them out of the running. I think they'd love to have Machado at third. Franco, their current third baseman, is a guy you can trade pretty easily. 
the Yankees are probably still interested. They they still are very much in the game for Machado, but I agree with what you're saying. You know, how long can these guys hold off? You know, who's going to win out that waiting game between the teams and the players? And can, in some cases, can they leverage the teams really off of themselves? Uh, there are probably not as many teams really in the running than maybe you would have expected two or three years ago, knowing that these guys would come to free agency, especially with some question marks that both of them have, despite their young age and despite them already being a multiple all-star team. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. The Whitney Athletic Center, which if you're unfamiliar, is a new complex going in in front of the Delaware Stadium, as well as renovations to Delaware Stadium, will be beginning Next Tuesday, December 18th, is the official groundbreaking ceremony. They will be adding new seats to the middle section of the home side. They will be adding new luxury suites on top of, or atop, not really on top, but that go above the current home stands in that vicinity. There will also be, I assume the, the suites will be a little bit lower. In that area, there will be the press box, a new area for you guys to enjoy, um, most <laughs> likely. And... Then the Whitney Athletic Center, which will be a new training facility for student-athletes and also a place where they'll have new resources for student-athletes like academic counseling and so forth. Uh, But all of that, which we had known about, they announced that it would be starting immediately after the season at the final home football game against Villanova, and they had announced the initial plans going back to last spring and the coinciding with the introduction of the Delaware First Fundraising Campaign, the largest fundraising campaign in university history, all of that, the culmination of it or the start of it, will be Tuesday, the 18th. So we won't have a show next Thursday as Jake goes back home for a break. And we also have basketball basically at the same time, that game starting at 3 o'clock. So we decided to take the opportunity to discuss it a little bit here. They have changed the plans a little bit from the last time that we discussed it on the show. So first of all, any new impressions on the construction of the Whitney Athletic Center or the renovations to Delaware Stadium? Uh, And then second, you know, kind of your overarching thoughts on the new plans for Delaware Athletics and where you think Delaware Athletics are going moving forward. They announced it to be a $60 million project, and that will probably end up being more because that's how (laughs) construction goes and how things work. I'm interested to see the split because they haven't announced how much is going to each project, both the renovation of the uh, current stadium and then the athletic center. I don't realistically think they're going to put much into Delaware Stadium for two reasons. One, it's Delaware Stadium. It's mm-hmm. never been a, a the pride and joy of Delaware. It's not like Virginia Tech or Ohio State or Michigan. But it's also because we might be in time for just a brand new Delaware Stadium. It is yeah. a place mm-hmm. that we had conversation of last year and two years ago where when's it going to happen? A lot of CAA teams, William & Mary just got a fresh new makeover. Richmond's having a fresh new makeover for CAA football. We're not necessarily a year out of a new Delaware Stadium, but rather than putting in 30 of the 60 million, they might just say, all right, we'll put in 10, make it look good, and then a few years from now, let's make it work. Well, I think this is that facelift that you're talking about that William Mary did for 20 some million dollars, that James Madison did for even more than that. And I, you know, they're committed to spending the full 60 million dollars because they had to fundraise to a certain amount to be able to announce that this project would be beginning. What it really gives for Delaware Stadium is the new seats and uh, suites on the home side. The the away side in this first phase won't be affected. The um, end zone stands, mm-hmm. both the one that houses the students on the right side if you're on the home stands, 
and the one that's general admission to the left if you're at the home stands. I still never know which one's north and south. The guy, <laughs> the guy says when they're doing the blue hens chant, he yeah. says it so quickly that I have no idea, you know, which side is which. But you know that that they're committed to. But I guess moving forward, you know, there's the question: How far do you invest back into Delaware Stadium? This is a, the building that was built in 1954. Last major renovations in the 70s, so it's definitely due for a facelift, which it's going to get. Um, but you know, do, where do you go from from here beyond um, that? I'll go, I'll go to Nick here too. You know, what do you think of kind of the idea of progressing the resources as far as the Whitney Athletic Center and how that influences the progress of the programs or how those two things maybe run together, the progress of the major programs here with the investment in resources to try to pull more student athletes in? Yeah, I honestly forgot about this. So when I saw it in the doc, I was like, oh, wow, I totally forgot. So I looked up the article and, you know, it's an exciting time. As you said, $60 million could be more. It's a lot of money. But I think it just shows that Delaware's trying to put, you know, um, some money into its athletes moving forward. They hope that, you know, that our sports will only get better moving forward. So as a result, they want to put more effort into that. And I'm excited to see what they do to the football stadium, as you said, especially with, you said they're putting in new press boxes, right? So I think those will definitely be cool and, you know, what they do there. So it's nice to see from Delaware, but I also agree with you in the sense that, and Jake, that, you know, maybe it's not a bad idea to put $10 million here and then wait a couple of years and eventually, you know, build a new stadium uh, for the long haul. One thing that I'll be watching as we kind of go down and back and forth between South Campus and where we are here for basketball season and baseball season and so forth is how's this going to get done in whatever this is going to end up being, nine months, eight months, to get ready for next football season? Because that's the goal. That's the stated opening. The Whitney Athletic Center itself won't be fully completed, but the goal or what they say, they, at least you know the plan is for right now, is to have most of the press box operable for next season to have the stands on the home side complete so nobody's displaced or that they won't be at full capacity at the beginning of next season. They won't have full capacity for graduation this spring. Everybody's limited to three tickets for graduation. Typically, the big commencement ceremony is open to as many people as you'd want, and there are open seats on both sides. But I imagine pretty much the whole home stands will be shut down for that event. But moving into football season, you know, I wonder what the chances are that this is actually going to be finished in time because it seems like a pretty significant project to get done beginning December 18th for August 29th. Money's a powerful thing. (laughs) If you're willing to pay people overtime, they'll work overtime and get it set up. I think it'll be ready. I think both Delaware needs this and the university needs to get Mm -hmm. it done because they can't have ongoing construction on university when the university is really in full swing. I, that's why I said it's going to cost more. Yeah. It's a preliminary $60 million, but I'll probably pay an extra $10, 15000000 million to get another company right. or another look in to just get it done. No, oh, yeah. It's a big commitment, too. You can't just like start doing it and then halfway through be like, oh, we're not going to finish it in time and then just not do it because then where are you going to you know, have your football game? So it's a big commitment. But like Jake said, you know, money has a lot of power mm-hmm. to it. So if they pay enough money, I think it'll get done in time. And what do they say you can have? You know, it can be inexpensive. It can be quality. Or it can... Um, you know, be here quickly. Those yeah. are like the three things, and you can only have only two of two them. Two. Yeah. Um, I, I think the uh, the inexpensive one is probably the one you throw out the door, yeah. and you go for quality, and you go for as fast as possible with this type of thing. Maybe maybe you go inexpensive and as fast as possible, but maybe that's not the best long term yeah. um, thing for this type of project. Uh, but it's something we'll keep an eye on. Tuesday, the eighteenth, is the groundbreaking ceremony. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. No, I'm disappointed in myself. I don't have a 
on my computer the Eric's Igloo official theme song. It's a little bit of Black Keys will have to do. Welcome back to Blue Hen Sports Gage on 91.3 WVD. We're happy to welcome in Rachel Sawicki to talk a little bit of hockey. I jokingly put in the um, the doc that we have that we keep track of our rundown. Uh, this segment is Eric's Igloo featuring Rachel Sawicki, but maybe it'll just become Rachel's Igloo as she joins us today to talk first Delaware hockey and then uh, the NHL, our, our expert. She, you'll hear her on Delaware hockey coverage all throughout the winter. But first, got to start with these little... Um, treats you made us. I saw <laughs> online earlier today you had a whole display of cookies, and we're privileged to each receive a little collection here. I'm very excited. About Coming this. right with me to the library. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like my. Thank you very much. It's like my little thing I do every every year. My um, it's my aunt on my mom's side, and all her daughters. They always make these cookies, and I've just kind of expanded on, on. The different kinds that I make, so it's like my thing every year. You know, everybody—it's like everybody expects them every year, kind of. So I had—I <laughs> had to do it. If I didn't do it, everybody would be mad. So, <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Rachel, how have you been doing? We talked off the top of the show about this being finals week. This is the last week for everybody here on campus. How are you holding up personally? What do you have left to accomplish before uh, you make your voyage back downstate? I'm—I'm uh, I'm actually done. Nice. I just uh, at an hour ago, I handed in my. My last paper, I had a paper due at 5 o'clock, handed that in, and now I am all finished. Actually, actually, I had most of my finals last week. The, uh, yeah. the communications department works works well that way. Nick knows what I'm yeah, talking yeah. about, too. You know, They have them all like before finals week so they can, uh, they can send us all home early. But I'm, I'm sticking around for another week just to hang out and make cookies. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but otherwise, yeah, we're, we're doing good. And then um, I have you know, Christmas break and then... Um, Eric and I guess a couple other people are going to have to cover Delaware hockey. Yeah, you're going away, right? I'm going to Spain for four weeks. She's fancy. To, to study to study Spanish over there. It, I think it's funny. People ask me, like, oh, you're you're going to Spain? What, what are you studying over there? I'm like, um, the French. Language. French. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm studying Spanish over there, so... Do you know um, where in where in Spain you're going? Barcelona or uh, other places? Well, we fly into Madrid. We're there for a weekend, but I'm studying in Granada most of the time, and then nice. we have a free weekend. Most people go to Barcelona, but um, I've kind of been talking with some people, and I'm like, does anybody want to go to Morocco? Because I really want to go to Morocco, and everybody's like, ah, I want to go to Barcelona or France or something. What a I'm like, problem to have! <laughs> <laughs> it's like, nah, you know, yeah, wait a yeah, minute, you know, me... I'm good on Morocco. <laughs> Let's just go to Barcelona or somewhere. You know what? If we have to. Oh yeah, but I'm yeah I'm really excited. I'm I'm sad I'm gonna be missing hockey. I was really I was really excited about that. You know we haven't we've barely had any games like any home games this whole semester. Yeah, we only, only have been a one few. in December. Yeah, and they're all in January when I'm not going to be here. So it's uh it's up to Eric and I guess whoever else is here over winter session to to take over. So I've been trying I've been trying to catch Parker Kerrigan up a little bit. Um, last weekend we had the um, the the last game there and the de- the debacle at the hockey yeah, yeah. Oh, man that that gold arena we, sometimes we get kicked out of the Fred Rust and they they have them over in the gold arena and that arena is so old and even the people who work there they're like I don't even know why we have games here because <laughs> this arena kind of stinks you know so we couldn't find a place to set up couldn't do the broadcast I was really disappointed that we couldn't that was going to be my last one that I got to do before heading out of the country and um but we stayed we live tweeted and I'm really glad that we did because that was that was a really exciting game. Yeah, let's get to that game. Delaware hockey right now 8 and 7 on the season. 
and you noted here a five-game winning streak, including that last game that you and Parker were down there for. Take us through that game, what went on there, some extracurricular activities, including the activity uh, on the ice, which I know a lot of hockey fans you know, are in it for. So take us through that last game. Uh, yeah, I'm just really, I mean, going through the tweets here because we, you know, we stayed and we live tweeted the whole thing because I didn't, I didn't want to just go and bring everything and then, you know, just mm-hmm. say, oh, we can't set up, so let's just not do anything. Let's go home. I'm like, absolutely not. We're staying. And I sat there with Parker and I said, this is this is this person and this is what this is. So so he can kind of know and um, and help out during the winter session, but. Um, they won that game 8-1, to one, and I have not seen them play like that in a very, very long time. Um, they had a very slow start to the season. Uh, again, they're 8-7, they're and seven, um, but five of those eight have come in just the last two or three weeks, and we've been playing since September. It took them two, two and a half months just to get a win at home. They were winning everything away and nothing at home. Um, and and which is which is very unusual, not just for Delaware, but for any team. You know, usually you... You find a bigger win percentage at home because, you know, you're in an arena that you're familiar with. You have uh, more of your fans there. You're, you know, you're just more comfortable when you're at home. But it just seemed to be the opposite for Delaware for a while there. But um, it was good to at least stay and watch and, and see them um, really just excel. Um, we've been seeing a lot of the freshmen really stepping up um, to play and, and taking on some leadership there. Again, we lost a lot of seniors last year. Um and we had a lot of new freshmen come in. It's, it's a completely different team, really. Half the team has been just rearranged and switched, and um, but they've been doing really well. They've finally got their footing here. Um, specifically, Jake Nima, he's had two the last game, and um, he's been doing really, really well um, just in general uh, as, a, as a freshman. And also we were super excited as soon as, soon as the second period started – I told Parker, because I'm trying to sit here and live tweet everything that's going on, he's like telling me what's going on and I'm typing as fast <laughs> as I can to, to put it in there because so many things were happening so fast. Um, and as soon as the second period started, he's like, oh, there's a, there's a goalie change. And I'm like, oh, okay, so who's out there? Steven East. And it was Nikon Yaz Danny, who we've been waiting to see all season. He's a freshman this year. But Eric and I, we've been talking and talking and talking about it. We've been waiting. We've been talking to the coaches like, hey, so like, when are we going to see him and what he gets to do? Um, and he and he was great. Um, you know, he's he's a big guy, so that's why we were so excited. He's like six foot eight. I mean, this man oh. is huge. He's he's <laughs> massive. We're like, oh my gosh. Um, but he did really well. Um, aside from the one at the the very end there, um, we were it, it was going to be a shutout win for Delaware. They were going to win eight to nothing, and then literally with not even two seconds left, just right off the face off, just you know. Um, they just shot one right down and, and it just flew right past him. And I mean, two seconds left. We were like, uh, are you serious? I, I put in there, like, I already tweeted. I had said, like, oh, to finish it off, you know, one more, um, you know, for whoever it was. And then, you know, I was like, just kidding, surprise. <laughs> one more there, <laughs> not for Delaware. But uh, it, was, it was a really good game uh, overall. You're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark. We're talking with Rachel Sawicki about Delaware hockey on Blue Hen Sports Cage. Who else should hockey fans be looking out for as we go into the winter on this team, freshmen or otherwise, who have been the main contributors, and what are you expecting for them moving into January and February? Well, definitely our captains, um, you know, or our assistant captains, rather, because uh, Mike Zidancic is your captain this year. He's he's doing well. He's a leader. He's always done well ever since he's been here. I mean, 
I've only been here for two years, so I can't speak on his entire time here. Um, but last year he was definitely a leader, and it was a no-brainer that he was that he was going to be a captain or at least assistant this year, you know. Um, but right now at the, at the top of the board is uh, Mike Niski, Chris Mazzella, and Kevin Felice, all of all of your assistant captains there. Um, Niski's leading with 30 points and Mazzella with 29. Um, they're really at, at the top of the board there. Uh, Niski is leading in assists, and Chris Mazzella is leading in goals. Um, they've both just been incredible and we like to talk we love not like we love to talk about Mike Niski um and his speed on the ice it's ridiculous I mean I I could just watch it like all day long I mean I don't know how he does it he's hands down the fastest player on the team he knows his footwork he knows how to get around the other team and he knows how to make it work um going back to the last game a little bit though um (laughs) I put in the dock here you know what was that last game holy cow he got ejected from the game in the um, in the first period. There, the the first period just ended in a complete brawl, like right in front of us too, like where Parker and I were sitting, and like both teams, like all of them, it was like just I don't know. They all just got in this massive fight for who knows what reason, but because uh, Delaware was winning, so I don't know what they were mad about, but. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Niski and one of the other players um, from Towson got ejected. And um, you know we didn't see him for the rest of the game. Uh, we had a lot of a lot of penalties that were laid on there um, at the end of the first two, and it was it was pretty crazy. And it was not something that we would expect to see from from Mike Niski. Like I've never seen that from him. He's you know his penalty minutes are not much at all, like at all. He doesn't he hardly has any compared to some of the others on the team. You know, obviously he's played more games, so he'll have more than those who haven't played as many games, but. In comparison, you know, he's he's focused on the game. He's not one to be um, racking up penalty minutes, let alone be ejected from the game. <laughs> right. Um, and again, you know, like I said, uh, Jake Nima, definitely looking out for him. Um, we were really excited about Greg Jandoli this season because, um, you know, the end of last season, uh, like the second to last game, he had a hat trick there at the end of the season. He kind of surprised everybody. So we were really looking forward to seeing him this season. But um, I saw him the other day. He's going to be out. The, pretty much the rest of the year with a broken wrist. So um, he's trying to train. He's trying to stay in shape, stick with the team. But uh, we'll have to see what happens next year because for the rest of the season, he's going to be out. And so. if I'm not mistaken, first year in quite some time without a red gate this year. Is that yeah, true? so, yeah, it's not that he doesn't want to play. Um, he's not on the roster, or maybe he is on the roster now. I don't know. We haven't checked. But Eric and I have been asking the coaches – there's just something going on. He's not academically. Mike Redgate, this is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's not uh, academically eligible right now or something like that, but he's not just, like, not playing hockey. Um, so maybe next semester we'll see him back. But um, I think so far the team's been doing okay. With that. I mean, you have plenty of other guys on the team that are leading and are stepping up. Um, so, you know, a team without a Redgate, it is strange, but it's not a complete disaster. Eight and seven on the season right now. Coming up when we get back to action at the the uh, Fred Russ, I'm just calling it Bob, the Fred Russ <laughs> Ice Arena. We got William Patterson, Syracuse, and Rhode Island. Obviously, you know, you only get to kind of see these teams once in a weekend. We kind of like scouting on them or an ability to really watch the other teams outside of the Rust Arena and the Gold Arena, but. From Delaware's perspective, you know, what would you like to see them improve upon going into those games and 
how do you think they kind of generally stack up against those couple of teams coming up? Um, I would say I don't know much about William Patterson. Um, they're six and seven right now on their season. We have not played them this season. We didn't play them last year. I don't know if we've played them in years prior because I, I haven't. I, have, I don't even haven't. really know where that is. Yeah, I don't know. I don't <laughs> yeah, know. You represent I, right there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I haven't. I haven't. I haven't been here. Guessing it's a smaller school. Yeah, it's very. It's small and uh, it's Northern Jersey. I'm pretty sure, but yeah, it's relatively small. Oh, geez, yeah. So I haven't been here. This is, might be a new team that we're that we're playing. So I don't know much about them. Um, but you know, regardless, I expect Delaware to come out and play their best. Um, something we've talked about time and time again is staying out of the box, is not giving up um, You know those penalties there. It's an easy opportunity for the other team um, to take advantage. And not giving up late goals in the games, you know, um, whether Delaware's ahead. It, I mean, it doesn't matter if they're ahead by, by eight um, like they were this past weekend. It's just about every single game that they have, they always give up something. Um, in the third period, and um, it doesn't always cost them the win, but uh, a lot of times it does. So um, Syracuse, they're eight and five. Uh, they totally kicked butt last time, beating us six and three and seven and one. Um, and the year prior, it was around the same thing. They they took the weekend from us. So Syracuse is a really good team. Um, they're a little aggressive. I do remember that about them. So again, Delaware is staying out of the box. Uh, and then Rhode Island is is they're ten and nine right now. They're about even with us, I think, as far as their skill level and their record. Um, we split the weekend with them when we played them last back in November, I believe it was. We played them um, here at home, so just expecting Delaware to just you know not let up and not get too comfortable when they do get ahead. That's that's something um, that we've seen is their downfall. They they get too comfortable or. They start out too slow. It's it's always one or the other. It's always, you know, they find that power at some point in the game, but it's either too soon or it's too late. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Carter in this game, career high 33, 12 of 14 from the field, 12 rebounds, 5 assists. I have to say, I was able to get down there for second half of this game, all in 38 minutes of play. This is probably the best single player performance I have seen in my four years here. And that includes some pretty high-scoring games by Ryan Daly. Yeah. Um, but Daly never scored 33. Corey mm. Holden's been in the 30s, but he never did it with 12 rebounds and five assists. It was a complete game. He didn't hit like a miraculous shot. You know, Ryan Daly had that clutch factor in a couple of his performances mm. that Eric Carter didn't necessarily have in this game, but basically fueled every element of Delaware's offense in a game that Ithiel Horton struggled a bit shooting 6 of 14 from the field, and they took a little bit to get going. Carter, defensively and offensively, was the man Sunday afternoon. Yeah, and he did exactly what he needed to do. You know, he is that, you know, alpha dog for the Blue Hens thus far, and he stepped into his role perfectly, and as you said, he did a little bit of everything. And then he also had um, some supporting cast do pretty well. Kevin Anderson at 14, as you said, and it took him a little bit to get going, but he had 15. And then Darian Bryant also having 12 points, along with seven rebounds. So it was, you know, altogether a really good game from the Blue Hens, and obviously it was highlighted by Eric Carter's big day. Eric Carter's fourth in the CAA in points per game. The three names above him, you'll know them well. Justin Wright Foreman from Hofstra, mm-hmm. who has an astoundingly commanding over points per game. He's averaging six more points per game than anyone else. He has almost 150 more points 
and almost double the amount of field goals. What's his goals. average? He's averaging 26.7 oh, points per game. Wow. That's all right. 121 <laughs> field goals on the year. The second one, Grant Riller, only mm-hmm. has 65 wow. points per game. After him, Jarrell Brantley. And then Eric Carter, who's fourth in the CAA in points per game. We probably would not have expected that. No, and, I wouldn't. No. Have. I mean, I thought he'd take a step forward, but I didn't think. Yeah. I wouldn't say he's going to score 20 points a night. It's almost weird to think that Ryan <laughs> Allen's still not on the court. Yeah. Now, with Ryan Allen on the court, Eric Carter should probably lose a bit of a step in points per game. Right. Mm-hmm. But putting Eric Carter and Ryan Allen and Kevin Anderson and Nathaniel Horton <laughs> and Matt Verretto on the court at the same time, we might be looking at a top CAA team right here. Again, hindsight and we're foreshadowing <laughs> whatever you want to call it. It's early it's in the early. year. Yeah, it's very But it's a nice feeling to have. Oh, yeah. And he's also third in rebounding, 9.6 rebounds per game. I think an underrated element of losing Ryan Daly is that you were losing a pretty strong presence on the glass. Mm-hmm. We would talk a lot leading up to the season, and rightfully so, about it re- replacing, in a sense, his offensive production, a guy who was 16 points a game as a freshman, 17-18 as a sophomore, but as a freshman, he was over seven rebounds a game. Last year, he had six rebounds a game. That type of hustle from Ryan Daly, you didn't have from anybody else on this team. Eric Carter is is a fundamental big man. I mean, he he's he's doing everything you ask, post-up, possessions, pick and roll. Uh, defensively, he's the anchor of the defense. We've even seen him step out a couple times to shoot the three, and Inglesby, when he was in this studio, said he's got the green light to do that. Uh, so that would be the complete game for him if he's can, able to shoot that ball consistently. Beller probably doesn't need him to, though, especially when you bring back the scoring presence of Ryan Allen to this team. And then what we've seen from Ithiel Horton, who, again, 6 of 14 shooting in this game, not his best night, but another double-digit performance. He's had double-digit scoring-wise in every game but one this season, and now he's back-to-back CAA Rookie of the Week. Pretty strong uh, non-conference slate so far from Ithiel Horton. Yeah, Hort- uh, Horton is a special type of player. Not only can he... Uh, you know, drive to the basket at will. You know, we saw it at when I called the Navy game with you. He was doing a really good job with that. But he also just has a knack for shooting. And, you know, he's not one of the guys to shy away from shooting either. If he's having a rough day, he'll keep shooting until it goes in. And it proves. I mean, some of his field goal percentages aren't the prettiest. But at the end of the day, he's producing points and well-deserving of his back-to-back CAA player of the weeks. I just want to go back to Eric Hart for a quick yeah, second yeah. because I went um, a little deep here. The second big man in the mm-hmm. CAA when Coach Inglesby said, Eric Carter has the potential to be the best big man in the CAA. His top competition was Devontae Kaycock in UNCW. He's probably the one that is going to compete I like Nathan with him. Knight too. Yeah, Nathan Knight is good. Eric Carter, number one in field goal percentage, right behind him, Devontae Kaycock. Mm-hmm. Rebounds per game, Devontae Kaycock is one. Eric Carter is three. Uh, defensive rebounds per game, Kaycock is two. Carter is three. These are players that are going to be battling it out. And Eric Carter has lived up to his standard. So, I mean, we talk about him scoring, the team, all that. But when you get to the nitty-gritty and you really look at what Eric Carter's doing, he is statistically competing as one of the best big men and one of the best players in the CAA. Now, on the other side, Ithiel Horton. Yeah. Two, Rookie of the Week. Mm-hmm. We've said a few times we might have a third straight Rookie of the Year winner on the <laughs> Delaware side. Ithiel Horton is seventh in the CAA in three-point percentage. That is not what Ethiel Horton came into this league looking like. He was a guard, maybe a small guard, mm-hmm. but somebody who can play alongside Kevin Anderson and slow the pace Combo down. Combo guy. Yeah. You know, play just, some point guard when Anderson's out, play alongside him while Allen's injured. But now, I talked about it last week, and this week just supports it even more. We have quite the conundrum yeah. when Ryan Allen comes back and he's healthy. 
because we have six starters, and only five can go on the court at once. And it's a great problem to have if your coach Inglesby to look right. at your bench and say, mm, do I start Ryan Allen? Do I start Ethel Horton? Do I start Matt Ferretto? But that leads to this team's depth. Last year we struggled. It was seven deep almost every game and nowhere in between unless it's a blowout. But this year, eight deep is pretty reasonable. Nine deep if we're digging on a blowout, but we can do it. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing for this team to have. And I think that it will end up still being pretty tight in close games by virtue of the way Inglesby has played things in his three years here. Against St. Francis, your starters go 38 minutes, 38 minutes, 39 minutes, 39 minutes, 32 minutes. Veretta was 32. Everybody else, 38 plus. I think guys like Jacob Cushing, maybe Ryan Johnson could stand to play a couple more minutes than four for Johnson Mm -hmm. and eight for Cushing. Like Those guys could play 10 to 15 minutes and probably should in December when we want these guys healthy in March. But he trusts those five guys. Ryan Allen is another guy that he trusts. It's another guy that played 38, 39 minutes in games last season. So if you at least have six guys who you're comfortable playing 30-plus minutes, and then you get into Cushing, who can be useful in spots, Ryan Johnson, Colin Goss, who can maybe be useful in spots, now you start to get more comfortable with Carter maybe playing 30 minutes in a game instead of 38 in a close game. And then, like you said, when it's a blowout, mm-hmm. you're running Johnson with Cushing with you know with the bench unit. Yeah, and those guys are better than bad teams in the CIA. In the close games, you might still see six or seven guys, but it's a good six or seven. It's a really solid um, six or seven guys. And real quick on Horton, talking about CIA rookie of the year potential, obviously it's December 13th. There's a lot to be... Played last year at this point, Kevin Anderson looked like the front runner, and he got hurt. We didn't see him in CIA play. Mm-hmm. But Horton right now is 16th in the league in scoring. He's the first first among freshmen in scoring at 14.1 points per game. The next freshman on that list is Cameron Winter of Trexel at 10.2 points per game, which is a pretty steep difference. Winter is nine players back of Horton, who again is 16th in the league in scoring. I want to go to that that question Jake posed, though. You know, when Ryan Allen comes back, both what's your starting lineup and then what's your kind of crunch time lineup? What's, who's the five guys in there, if it's different from your starting lineup, in the last two or three minutes of a close game? I'll go kind of two options mm-hmm. here, team dependency. If you're up against a UNCW, a team that's going to pound it down low, mm-hmm. I'm confident in putting Matt Verretto on that wing as that, eh, maybe big man, but can body people up. Maybe not the fastest, but can do what he needs to do. So I would have Carter, Varetto, and Darian Bryant be the three. And then my front court, I would probably go Ryan Allen, Kevin Anderson. Um, but if it's a smaller team, a team that we can run the floor on, kind of like Northeastern uh, was last year, kind of like Drexel was last year with Tremaine yeah, Isabel. They didn't really have a big. Yeah, it was just run the floor. I would probably sit Matt Varetto, mm-hmm. keep Darian Bryant in the starting lineup, and then put Ithiel Horton as that maybe three. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I agree with both those lineups you said. I think the thing that I'm most looking forward to is if they, in fact, do have a lineup like Kevin Anderson, Ryan Allen, and Ithiel Horton, how do they play? Because you have three uh, guys with similar types of, of playing style, and you know it's going to be interesting to see. They can all score, and um, I'm really interested to see how the three of them are going to you know play together if they all do, in fact, get on the court at some point, which they probably will later in the season. But they all have something different yeah, to them. Like, Ryan Allen is... Probably the best attacker yeah. they have. Kevin Anderson's great. I like Horton, too. I think Horton's a yeah, promise. Yes. 
But last year, especially during in the CAA tournament, we're going to discount the brutal game <laughs> that he had. But the game that Delaware won was solely based on Ryan Allen's ability to attack the basket and play. Kevin Anderson is a really confident guy. He had a lot of turnovers last year, and we talked about that rookiness of him showing. And this year, he has gotten better at that. His turnover per uh, assist ratio is one of the better ones in the CAA. He can just control the floor, and Horton's explosive. Yeah. He kind of brings that Ryan Daly explosive this, that wherever he touches the ball, you need to put a man on him. If he's deep in three, you need to guard him. And even if he's down low, he's quick enough to do it. So these three guards can work together if they just use their strengths and let the others do what they're good at. How much of a statement is it, or I guess, you know, how much does it speak to the progression of Darian Bryant that when we talk about these lineups, it's really hard to not see him as part of that crunch time five-man lineup or as part of that starting lineup as kind of the three, one of those extra peripheral players, but a guy who is having a good start to his season, a little under 10 points a game, but shooting 40% from three. Yeah. That, that, you know, we were talking before the season, Jake, about, you know, how who fills in that spot because we didn't have much confidence that it would be Darian Bryant, but his play has put himself in a position where when we think about how do those three guards coexist? It's almost a given that Darian Bryant is going to have some role to play when we get to the stretch run. He's doing great. I mean, again, I put out my apology last show as for being absolutely brutal on Darian Bryant, but he's really doing well. And I think it's because of the success of Ithiel Horton and Matt Verretto, where he is no longer the third scoring option. He is no longer when teams double covered Eric Carter. And if Kevin Anderson gets bottled at the top of the key, it's Darian Bryant shooting. Now he's fourth, sometimes the fifth scoring option on the court, which right. is perfect for him because he doesn't need to take all these shots a game. We knew he was good. But after a lot of these shots, and especially against that brutal run, the Towson game, uh, both home and away, he was just taking so many shots that it just looked like he couldn't score. Less shots, but better shots lead to Darian Bryant's success. Yeah, when you take the pressure off him and you release that burden, I think it you know helps him ultimately a lot more as he doesn't feel like, oh, I need to be the scorer for this team. As you said, you know, three other guys, four other guys possibly ahead of him. He lets the game come to him, and he's in force as much. And and as a result, the Blue Men just play better when it's like that. So um, he stepped into his role nicely here, and it's been working out so far for him. Anything else you guys want to add? Any other observations from the beginning of non-conference play for the Hens? A little thing on Darian Bryant here, which I thought was interesting, was last season, Darian Bryant was not in the top 60 of CAA players in scoring. There are nine teams in the CAA uh, basketball, right? Nine teams, ten teams? Ten, including Delaware. Yeah, Nine ten. other teams. Nine other teams. So mathematically speaking, the top 50 scorers in the CAA should be each team starting five. Yeah. Just mathematically, that might not turn out. Right now, Darian Bryant is 39 which is good for Darian yeah. Bryant. We didn't expect him to be that lead guy, but he we expected him to be good. So if you look at 39 out of the 50 top scorers in the CAA, that puts Darian Bryant at about the third best scorer on the Delaware team as per averages per game. Mm -hmm. That's a good place for Darian Bryant to be, and later in the season, I think he could probably keep that. 8.2 points per game right now for Darian Bryant, shooting 40.7% from three-point range. As impressive as that is, that's fourth on the team among guys who have shot yeah. more than 20 so far this season. Horton and Veretto, both freshmen, top two freshmen in terms of three-point shooting in the CAA so far this season. They're in the top 10 overall. 
And then you get Jacob Cushing off the bench at a 42.9% clip. An impressive start for Delaware men's basketball, who has two more games in non-conference play before CAA action begins. The men's side is 8-3. and three. They go to Stony Brook on Sunday. That is a 2 o'clock tip-off. Then they're back home at the Bob for a 7 o'clock tip against Delaware State University. We'll have that game on 91.3 WVUD. CAA play begins December 28th at Hofstra. The first home CAA matchup is January 3rd against the College of William & Mary.